0: attempt by philosophy at this point to focus on the idea of how to make one happy. Uh, In Greek, this is eudaimonism, right? So good spirit means like happiness. And almost all of the major philosophical um, sects that kind of develop out of Aristotle are looking for kind of the the way in which we as individuals and society can prosper. Um, And then, of course, you know, The romans you know to to a certain degree um adopted it and there was at the beginning of the roman period there was a rejection of greek philosophy and only over time did it sort of embed itself as a as a reasonable um sort of approach because it was too greek
1: that was today's guest dr scott smith chair of the department of classics humanities and italian studies at the university of new hampshire My name is Mark Bonica, and I'm an associate professor in the Department of Health Management and Policy, also at the University of New Hampshire, and you are listening to Flourishing in the World, a podcast exploring what it means to live a worthy life. Dr. Smith is a philologist and a scholar of the ancient world. In this podcast, we discuss ancient Rome and specifically the Stoic philosopher and politician Lucius Aeneas Seneca, the Younger and his writings. I hope you enjoy this podcast, and if you do, won't you leave us a rating on iTunes, Spotify, Google, or wherever you may be listening? Or better yet, share it with a friend. Thanks for listening, and here is Scott Smith. Welcome to the podcast, Scott. Mark, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So today we're going to talk a little bit about Seneca, classics, but I want to ask you, how did you uh, get interested in the classics?
0: Well, it's a, you know, I call myself the accidental professor for a reason, and it goes all the way back to uh, sixth grade in a place called Mechanicsville, Virginia, where I was living. And we were brought in, this was the the elementary school last year, and we were going to go into middle school. And we were sat down in front of this table with these really old computer like large sheets that have like holes in the side for the feed you might remember them yeah yeah Uh, Yeah, a lot of people probably have no idea what I'm talking about but (laughs) um and it was like you know pick your courses in middle school this is a big jump you get to kind of choose some things and so you know you you, took your math class you get a science class you get your English class and then it's like you get to choose a language and I was I mean I was 13 I had no idea what was going on I didn't know what languages were and I said, you know, which one's the weirdest? Just to kind of like just have some kind of criterion to choose. And they said, oh, probably Latin because it's not spoken anymore. And so I, I took Latin. Um, the 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 next phase is when I was in Latin class for the first four or five weeks, I wasn't really into it. I was just the typical 13-year-old trying to figure out what's going on. And then my teacher put a test in front of me. And the test was not expected by me. I had no idea a test was coming. So I, and and this is a warning to people, um, don't, uh, first of all, uh, fail to pay attention, but also <laughs> don't cheat because I literally looked at, at my next my next door neighbor's papers. I had no idea what was going on with this language. And of course the teacher, I was a bad cheater. She saw me, she told me, please go up to the front. I white knuckled my paper up to the front of the room. Um, and she never said a word ever again, uh, but I got super angry as kind of an angsty teenager. Um, And so I wanted to prove to her I didn't need to cheat. So I I worked really hard to learn this weird language. I spent my, you know, extra hours like studying these weird forms. For the listeners out there, Latin um, uses endings on words to determine the meaning and the structure, not the order itself. So I spent a lot of time doing that. Um, And then I went to college where I, I learned ancient Greek. And I just thought to myself, this is such a rich world, right? There's just so much there. And unlike other historical peoples, we have so much writing, right? We have literature, we have history, we have plays, we have all sorts of things. And then the history of the Romans took me, and then the Greek philosophy took me. And when I got to graduate school, I decided, you know, this is kind of the thing I want to do, and I want to be around young people who want to learn it as much as me. So that's kind of the, you know, in a nutshell, it's really you know, a, a series of things that happened that led me to this wonderful life that I have. That's great. Um, now,
1: in our in our kind of preparatory conversations, you said you are actually a philologist. So yes. what is that? And how is that different? Because like, that sounds like a philosopher.
0: Um, so what what is a philologist? Um, I, I will channel one of my graduate school professors, Gerald Brown, who was a brilliant philologist. And he, he tells a story that when someone asked him, what is philology, he said, he paused, he kind of, mm, it's reading things slowly. Um, it literally means the love of words, and it's really the uh, study of the text and how it comes to us, right? So everything that we read today, the translation of letters that you've been reading, um, actually are a process whereby we try and reconstruct what the ancient author wrote because we have nothing from their hand. Like we have no ancient text that is from the hand of the author until we get very, very late. And even then it's not really clear. Um, And so it's been transmitted, it's been copied. People have added things surreptitiously into the text. So what we have, we have to kind of study it very carefully and compare different manuscripts because until the 15th century, we relied on hand copies. And I don't know if any of you have ever tried to copy a large piece of text. You always like miss a letter, miss a, like, so if something happens and over time, those things accumulate. So our job is to kind of look at things really carefully and reconstruct the text. Um, and all of that is in service of trying to establish what we actually have from antiquity, right? So rather than trust the, the aggregate that, you know, the, the far side, you know, today, we have to go back and kind of figure out what was actually there. Um, and one of the things about classics in general is that it's a fragmentary study, right? We have so many small things here and there, and we have a lot of it, but we have no complete picture. So we really have to be careful about what was actually said by a certain person before we start making grand proclamations. And those who study the Bible and religious texts realize this is serious stuff, right? What was actually written by, say, you know, the gospel of Mark, for example. Right, yeah. right. So, yeah. So the um, is, so, sorry, so so just to yeah. summarize you know, you know, philology is really like the study of text and you better love it because it's not exciting work all the time, but it's really, it's really important. Great.
1: Well, so let's, let's, uh, let's start talking a little bit about Seneca. Um, And I think maybe the, uh, to get to him, let's talk about the relationship between Seneca's Rome and Greece, right? Because Seneca is deeply influenced by Greek philosophy. And we're talking about a, fairly long time frame like i think in you know if you just talk to the typical greek greeks and rome like like they're the same at this happening at this you know their influences are like the same time but they're really quite far apart right the influences for one or the core i'm going to say so what we think of as like the pinnacle of ancient greece is like quite distant from the rome of seneca's time is that is that accurate or am i overstating that
0: no, you're, okay. if, if anything, you're understating the importance of recognizing how long of a time period we're talking about. when We're talking about Greeks and Romans and the difference between, say, Greek philosophy and Roman philosophy. And we can talk about that if you'd like, about what that really yeah. means. But, you know, Socrates, you know, famously dies in 399. Um, so just after, you know, the fifth century, and the fourth century. And Seneca is living in the first century AD. So we're talking at least. You know, 450 years between sort of the way in which philosophy was emerging as a really important topic, especially in Athens, but not only in Athens, uh, Greece, um, and then the you know the Roman application. And in fact, Seneca is the only ancient author who writes organically about Greek philosophy. Every other Roman who writes philosophy more or less is either translating the ancient Greek documents into Latin for a Latin audience, or they're writing still in Greek. So for example, Marcus Aurelius, who is a Stoic philosopher uh, or uh, emperor who was influenced by Stoicism, uh, writes his meditations in ancient Greek. There's another sort of contemporaneous uh, philosopher named Musonius Rufus. Not many classicists know this guy, but he wrote in Greek about Stoicism. So Seneca is something of a unicorn, um, and writes in Latin, right? So Seneca's period is the imperial period of Rome, right? We're talking about the Neronian period. So it's from 54 to 68 AD. Seneca's uh, imperial Rome is going through a series of transitions from a republic into the empire where there's a single emperor. They call them princeps first man, but we call them the emperor. And um, And they still hadn't quite figured out what the emperor was because there was no constitutional document defining that role. So it's just some guy who had accumulated powers over time, and then it became kind of hereditary. And so Nero was part of this, and Seneca was trying to negotiate this really complicated time. And Stoicism had been part of Roman uh, culture in various forms for about, 150 years by the time he was starting to really study stoicism, but it had never really quite caught on in Latin, but he uses it to kind of negotiate the difficulties of this new world order. So it's yeah, very
1: so yeah. so, yeah. So I'm um so stoicism comes from Greece, right? So it's a, it's a Greek, it has its origins in, in, in Greece.
0: Yeah. So it's, so it's a, it's a product of the uh, kind of successors of Aristotle And it's called Stoicism because Zeno of Kitium, Zeno, Z E N O, Zeno of Kitium, basically uh, lectured and uh, taught Stoicism and came up with the ideas of Stoicism um, in a stoa, which is just an open portico, a covered portico, which is where maybe schools actually happened as well, right? So lectures would happen in open public spaces. They didn't really have schoolhouses the way we think of them necessarily. And philosophy wasn't really always part of the mainstream education anyway. It was an add-on, we might say. Um, So Stoicism was uh, really developed in the third century BC um, during the time when the Greek world was becoming unified. Previously, it was a bunch of smaller city-states that had autonomy then Philip II and his son Alexander the Great unified Greece, and then, of course, became imperialistic and moved it all across, um, well, the known world at the time, even into India. Um, that's why there are so many Alexandrias in the world. Um, but but it's part of that world in which um, there's an attempt by philosophy at this point to focus on the idea of how to make one happy. Uh, in Greek, this is eudaimonism, right? So good spirit means like happiness. and almost all of the major philosophical sect, um, sects that kind of developed out of Aristotle are looking for kind of the the way in which we as individuals and society can prosper in many ways. Um, and then, of course, you know, the Romans, you know, to, to a certain degree um, adopted it and there was at the beginning of the Roman period, there was a rejection of Greek philosophy and only over time did it sort of embed itself as a, as a reasonable um, sort of approach because it was too Greek, right? So that, too Greek. Greek Roman, okay. they, you know, the Romans are worried about these, you know, these Greek ideas coming in. Um, and there are lots of times when the Romans expelled philosophers, right? They just said, this, these philosophers are too dangerous. Get them out of here. Okay. Um, so, so, so Seneca was, was running some risk of, of being uh, overtly f- philosophical,
1: Oh wow. Okay, so that I didn't know that. So that that that's a potential like hey, you know, we don't need all these ideas, you know. Um <laughs> interesting. And and kind of going back to like you said a lot of the a lot of the Romans, I mean Marcus Aurelius, the emperor
0: who comes a little after Seneca, right? I mean, 20 30 years. So he's actually a little bit later than that. he's in the uh, mid to late second century AD. Oh. So a oh. hundred years <laughs> afterwards. yeah, he's hundred years. okay. Yeah, so so Marcus Aurelius was the last of what we call the good emperors and um, so yeah, so, so it's 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 quite a bit of time afterwards. So I my, my point uh, or the point I wanted to draw out was he's writing in
1: Greek. So Mm -hmm. there's something about Greek, um, Greek idea, even though you're saying like you can get in trouble for having too many Greek ideas. And yet they kind of love
0: Greek, uh, Greek, all the all things Greek, it seems like. Right. Uh, So the only way to describe this is a love, hate relationship, Uh, (laughs) honestly. So 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 the Romans conquered Greece militarily. And Horace famously said, yes, but the Greeks basically conquered Rome with its literature and arts, right? So so the Romans, like, gradually, and, you know, at first it was kind of like in private, like they would go to a Greek, like, villa uh, in the countryside of Rome, and they would do Greek things, and they would come back to the forum, and they would be very Roman and, you know, not, you know, straight to the facts. I'm, I'm, I'm simplifying things, obviously, uh-huh. But but you know, over time, like Hellenistic views and Greek views started to become more and more acceptable, even though there was always worry about um, radical ideas, especially ones that threatened the emperor, right? So anything that seems like it could be threatening the emperor um, is seen to be dangerous. And of course, the Stoics are all about freedom. Like yeah. freedom and emperors like don't necessarily mix if emperors are worried about their own station, right? So their talk about resistance, stoics you know, resisted the imperial order because it was not very stoic, right? They're dangerous, so kick them out. So mm-hmm. there's um, you know, a danger. But you know, if you're the emperor and you're writing philosophy in Greek, there's no threat because you've already accepted that, right? Um, but you know, there there is. There is that love hate relationship. I think even as we get into the empire, um, there there still is this kind of like waffling idea that the Greeks are really important and we like them and we like what they do, but it's not necessarily Roman, right? And eventually they kind of merge together, but you know, you know, it's a yeah. process.
1: Yeah, that's cool. I mean, it makes me think of the Renaissance and, you know, and the emergence of the Vulgate, I think is the right word The the you know, people starting to write intellectually. They had, uh, anybody who was an intellectual wrote in Latin mm-hmm. in the, you know, pre-Renaissance. And it was the beginning, you know, um, was it Petrarch or, or some, some oh. of the early Renaissance Italian poets started to write in Italian as opposed to in, and I'm probably getting this, the wrong, maybe it's not Petrarch, but somebody there, there's a beginning to start to write, artistic and philosophical works in the local language
0: rather than Latin. Yeah. So, so the, the vernacular of Latin, exactly. So Dante is a famous example. Okay. Right? Dante, that, right. You know, great. rather than writing an epic in Latin, you write an epic in Italian and it's quite beautiful. And um, so, yeah, so it's a, it's a departure. Um, yeah. And it's so- similar.
1: That's kind of my point is it, it's, is it a sim, is it, so you as a philologist, is it a, is it a similar thing to that that you've got Romans writing in Greek and then later on, we've got to make this break from, you know, from Latin to to the to the to the local languages.
0: Yeah, I, you know, I, you know, I think that the that the central concept here is kind of an authority. Like, like, where's the authority? And I and I think that for, so the ancient world, the authority of of philosophy is Greek. You can write in Latin, you can translate in Latin, and, and we can talk about why why is kind of weird in this regard. But if you're going to write Greek. You know, your philosophy, you're going to write it in Greek. If you're going to write an uh, epic in Latin, you're going to write it, you know, epic and write in Latin in the Renaissance until something breaks and therefore you have a different authority, right? And so I think that there are these shifting, um, you know, controls in some way about what is the legitimate language or register uh, for for these intellectual achievements. So I, so, so I think you're on to something. I have to think about it more, but yeah, I think okay. it's... You know where where's the authority lie in terms of the language of choice that 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 one chooses to use?
1: That's interesting. I uh, uh, I mean I just kind of came up with that as we're talking in it. Um, but well, let's um, you know, so Seneca he's born in four BC, right? Or as far as abouts- we know, that that's yeah. our best guess. Yeah. Okay. So so the Roman Republic falls in twenty seven BC. So he is living in a time when people still remembered the old mm-hmm. days.
0: Yeah, and um, yeah. So, so he was born in Spain, um, right? To, Rome, okay. to to Romanize Spaniard, so he's he's Roman, but but he's from Spain, and he he comes to Rome um, in his early life to get an education in a center, you know, a more intellectual center, um, and he's he's getting there uh, as he is. Um, you know, as the emperor position is is solidifying and is being transferred to other emperors, right? So Tiberius succeeds Augustus, who was uh, the emperor and the longest reigning emperor of all time. When Seneca was born, he uh, is a teenager under Tiberius from 14 to 31. Then when Caligula, sorry, 37, when Caligula comes into power, and many of your listeners probably have recognized Caligula as being represented as a crazy emperor. Um, he was probably not crazy at first, but suffered some kind of disease. But mm-hmm. Seneca had basically in Rome made his uh, his fame as a lawyer, and his reputation had boomed. And Caligula did not like him because he thought he was just flashy and not full of uh, gravitas and importance. Right, so he was just he was just a good fancy speaker. Um, he was then exiled under Claudius and then recalled to become Nero's tutor later in his life. So he was really kind of bound up in the political transformation that's going on. And, um, you know, you can also see how a person who is, uh, a good speaker and persuasive and compelling can really be seen as a dangerous person in the world of the Roman empire, um, and we can talk about why he was recalled and how he, his his relationship with yeah. uh, Nero. But um, he was part of this kind of time when the empire was emerging as a thing.
1: So I want to, I mean, just briefly kind of talk about that, because I think there's a I want to draw out a point about stoicism. No. I mean, he's flashy. He is one of the wealthiest people in the Roman Empire. Eventually, if not before the is he he's he's rising rapidly, as you were saying, um, before he's exiled. So he's super wealthy already, really successful. Right. And then he's exiled.
0: Yeah. So uh, he so we don't really know exactly what his wealth status was prior to exile. I mean, his Hmm. father, um, who's called Seneca, the elder. So the Seneca we're talking about is the younger Right. Um he was uh so his father was a remarkably um uh, intellectually gifted person. Um we actually have some of his uh I'll call them fake or practice speeches that he wrote. He actually basically cobbled together for his son all of the great speeches and sayings of his contemporary speakers. So he was he was taught in in rhetoric. Um we we think that he was relatively successful from the beginning because his father had large estates. We think in Spain, his mother who may have been a local Spaniard um, was uh, definitely wealthy. Um, And we think that he made a name for himself and you don't really catch the eye of Caligula or Claudius, unless you have some kind of clout. And that probably means you are wealthy as well. He really got wealthy under Nero so okay. I think that's where we think of him as being these, like have these massive states, but we, we, we know he was well to do and he was wealthy enough. Um I think what you're kind of getting at is the question about like the Seneca, like Seneca one and Seneca two, like <laughs> who is this guy? Yeah. Uh,
1: and I just, I just want to throw this out there. Like he's banished to Corsica, not a bad place to be. Um
0: Well, but... it is, it, it oh, is again. antiquity. Yeah. So, well, okay. I mean, we, we actually have writings from Corsica that Seneca wrote. Yeah. Um, yeah, he he writes his mom and says like, "This is a terrible place. It's rocky." <laughs> I mean, I mean, you know, you can take it with a grain of salt because you know, if you live in Rome, right. you have like it's like the like it's a big city and it's you know it's like New York City and it's like being sent to like a rural place in North Dakota that has nothing that you like. So you know, today Corsica has delicious cheeses and not a bad place <laughs> to go. But that was the definition of exile, was being exiled to an island. Now, I'm pretty sure that Seneca was exiled with the lighter form, which means he got to keep his property. Right. So there's relegation where they just send you away and say, like, just get out of the the, the way. Just get out of Dodge. Yeah. Um, And so it's not a full exile, but he certainly was there for for several years.
1: Yeah, I and I guess what what I circle back to there and, and yeah, he he does write some uh he does some writing from there that uh, um and he really wants to come back to Rome, but it just kind of I'm thinking about his stoic philosophy and like why wouldn't you just if you're truly stoic, all that doesn't matter, right? So so here here so we've got this guy who's kind of who we'll get to the letters here in a minute to talking about you know, how the outward stuff doesn't matter. And, you know, it's all about you. So help help me reconcile this a little bit.
0: Yeah. So this is, this is the, so I'm going to go back to a, to a German of the, of the, of the early 20th century, uh, Ulrich von Willemobitz mullendorf one of the great Greek tragedian scholars and Greek scholars of all time. And he had a predilection for Seneca. He liked Seneca quite a bit, but he, but he kept saying that there's there's a real problem in Seneca and scholarship is because you have Seneca, the philosopher, the guy who writes essays and letters that are really philosophically important. They're weighty, they're interesting. They give a sense of interiority and in how people think. And then you've got politician Seneca who, is, who becomes the tutor of Nero to teach him probably how to speak. And we know that his mom, Agrippina, said mm-hmm. to Seneca... I'm bringing you back from Corsica to teach my son, but don't you dare teach him that philosophy stuff. So again, there's a dangerous <laughs> thing. Don't you do that. So, but as soon as Seneca um, uh, came back, he taught probably public speaking, the art of persuasion, the art of public engagement. And Nero's really young; we're thinking something right. like 14 years old when Nero suddenly becomes emperor after Claudius's suspicious death by mushroom poisoning. Um, by
1: agrippina potentially by,
0: right? well yeah so the question <laughs> is is you know how far do we trust the ancient sources is that uh-huh. a good story but okay it's plausible that mom had something to do with this yeah. right? So, so mom was a kind come. of a badass right like i mean yeah uh, well I, at so, least yeah so, she's amazing um and her death is even yeah, more amazing we can come back <laughs> to maybe in a later podcast We can come back to that um <laughs> So uh, so when Nero becomes Emperor, Seneca is no longer just a teacher, but he becomes a central advisor and mentor. And the first five years of Nero's reign was said to be by ancient sources remarkable, right? He was a 16 year old kid. He probably leaned on Seneca. Um, he probably leaned on other you know, older um, officials. Um, and then when he sort of matured into independence, we might say it became problematic. But Seneca you know, wrote some remarkably politically savvy, I'll call them savvy um, speeches for Nero after horrible things happened, right? So he became an apologist for Nero's behavior. And I can't imagine being in that situation where you had to moderate uh, a teenager's impulses um, in order to make sure that the Roman empire doesn't fall apart uh, underneath him. Um, but there are some things that Seneca does that raise suspicion about his relationship to philosophy, right? So was mm-hmm. he always a philosopher or did he was he a philosopher when he could get away from the political intrigue? So I'm not sure I know that because Seneca's philosophical writings are not easy to tease out in terms of are they Orthodox? Do they follow like the Greek philosophical stoicism? Or is it a modified Stoicism? And scholars still wrestle and write books about Seneca's you know, uh, orthodoxy as a Stoic or not. So when he's in Corsica, he obviously talks about him being okay because he does have a philosophical mindset. He's actually trying to console his mom using Stoic philosopher. Like, mom, I know you're sad that I'm in exile, but hey, like, I can deal with it. It's a really terrible place, right? But- I can manage right so don't worry about me so there is a stoic uh, underpinning to this but the information he tells us about Corsica is not good like it's definitely not a place you know it's not a vacation yeah
1: yeah like you can yeah Um, who's the is it like uh, I'm thinking of consolation of philosophy it's like a fourth century Um, like uh, Boethius Boethius yeah the the later consolations yeah writing from a prison right so like it, it, and the are they are you know yeah i can make this do but you know, yeah all, all other things equal prefer not to be in prison uh, Yeah. yeah all right um so he so i mean uh we don't have time to talk about uh, the reign of nero which is fascinating in their relationship but but things kind of go bad uh nero's a bit of a of a uh he's on he's a kind of a crazy guy Loose cannon.
0: Let's say loose loose cannon. cannon.
1: That's a good one. Yeah. Uh, And Seneca eventually gets on the wrong side of him. And what, what do we, how does that all end up?
0: Yeah. So, so, so Seneca, um, you know, is, is asked and I I don't understand this quite how this works. I think it's um, you you don't really have a choice. He was, he was asked to commit suicide uh, by, by Nero and um, you know, things started to kind of turn sour when Agrippina was murdered when the leader of the Praetorian Guard, Burrus, uh, died. um, And then Seneca eventually realized how terrible things were. So he kind of retreated and asked Nero to allow him to retreat into privacy, right? So Seneca wanted to get out of the politics, but eventually Nero asked him to commit suicide. And um, he does, so it's very Socratic. So it's like Socrates. And Tacitus, who is a historian who wrote about the Neronian times, gives a great kind of, story about this. And one wonders whether or not this is accurate or it's embellished. And I think it's the latter. Um, so he tries to commit suicide by cutting his veins, but um, the blood doesn't flow enough because he's older. And apparently um, that is not a successful way all the time when you're older. So he had hemlock prepared, right? And Socrates dies by hemlock. The sure. hemlock comes to him and he then, while he's dying, philosophizes at the end of his life like Socrates and there's a very famous dual statue I think it's in the Kaplan Museum where Seneca is on one side and Socrates is on the other so there's clearly an attempt to associate Seneca as kind of a Roman Socrates in many ways who dies unjustly Socrates by the masses who you you know the juries that 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 condemned him Seneca by by Nero uh But that period, so because we're going to talk about the letters, that period about 63 AD, Mm -hmm. where he wants to retire from Nero and his death in 65, we think, scholars debate, but we think that that's roughly when the letters are being written. So in some ways, it could be a dramatization of the interior thoughts and processes that Seneca is going through during that time period. Now, this is not confirmed I think it's probably right for the most part, but they're, you know, they're 100 and, you know, they're over 125 letters. So some of them probably are things he had in his drawer where he could pull back out um, later. But the first one seemed to be daily reflections of, uh, of a person thinking about the world. And he's writing through uh, uh, this Lucilius.
1: Now, is this a real person? Is this like a, some sort of um, tool to, for a writer to just kind of dear Bob, you know, and Bob doesn't really (laughs) exist. Right. So,
0: yeah. So, so, so this is a great question in in Seneca scholarship as well is, are the letters authentic, right? When we think of a letter, well, I mean, maybe students don't, you know, younger people today probably aren't as familiar with letter writing. When I was younger, like letters were a thing you'd write to people and they would be like, you'd write, say, Hey, you know, John, I'm, I'm today, I'm going to the beach. I'm going to like build a sandcastle. And there's a sort of sense of, like, reality built into the letters, right? But letters in antiquity are published usually after the fact, right? So um, Seneca's letters, and this guy, Lucilus, you asked the question, is he real? Like, you know, for a long time, there's no reason to suspect he's not. Um, We do know that he was a governor of Sicily. Um, We think that he is a real person. The question is, is he a prop for the things that Seneca wants to write to a larger audience? And so it's always a question of like, is letter writing a personal thing or is it an essay in disguise? And you just write it to someone because it's what's on your mind. I think it's probably um, a a hybrid where he is thinking about these, but he's using this as an opportunity to, to reflect on bigger things. The one thing I'll say is that the letters, especially the early ones, seem to have a back and forth between Seneca and Lucilius where Seneca says, oh I received your letter and I'm so happy you're trying to make yourself better by like reading philosophical works. Um, we don't have Lucilius's side or did he write any letters And that's a question that scholars have posed. maybe they like maybe Seneca is creating this fictitious, you know, Uh, performative series of letters because he wants it to feel like a daily progression of back and forth between the, you know, two, two people. So I think, so I, I'm, I'm, I'm quite certain he's, he's real. The question of, does that make the letters authentic in our sense, which is like, Hey, I'm thinking about this. And, and I want you to really read this as a person rather than for a wider audience.
1: Would these have been public? Would people, other people, aside from Lucilius have Mm -hmm. read them? in, in, in Seneca's time?
0: Yeah. So, so publication that we think of, you know, you get a Barnes and Noble and you get a book or you go onto Amazon and you get an an ebook or whatever um, that is, you know, publishing house like owns it. They, they, they put it in a printing press. It's not like that in antiquity. And we, and we actually have another set of letters, Cicero's letters. Um, where they where they are definitely authentic because he's talking about Julius Caesar, for example, like storming into Italy and the, so we know that those were in fact um, uh, real and authentic that were published afterwards, right? Um, he was writing to the recipients, not for a larger audience. There's no question about that. Um, in other places, Cicero tells us that basically after you write an essay, you'll send it to a couple of friends And then eventually it might be released to the public and you might have someone write copies for you, right? But there's not wide dissemination of this. My own view of Seneca's letters is that they were written as a kind of self-reflection that really was for himself and for his reader and possibly for a wider audience. So I think Seneca was envisioning whether or not we know other people read it I think he was envisioning others to take this and to understand them, to think about them.
1: Yeah. So you you use the phrase we were just talking about this before we started, uh progressor toward virtue. Can you can you talk a little bit about that?
0: Yeah. So um the the Latin term for this is proficienes, which gives us our word proficient, right? But in 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 Seneca's uh, writings um, and other Stoic writings in Latin. We have bits and pieces, You know, Cicero talks about this. So a Proficians is a person who progresses towards virtue or is in the process of trying to become virtuous. And Seneca makes a big deal about this particular kind of person because tr- becoming a perfectly virtuous person in Stoicism from the very beginning of Stoic philosophy was almost impossible to achieve. Because it was basically becoming as rational and virtuous as God, right? So you you have you're temporarily bound in your world because you're human; you're going to die. But if you become perfectly rational and perfectly virtuous, you will become like God. But that's a pretty heavy thing to ask a human being to do. So Seneca <laughs> yeah. focuses, especially in the letters, right? He's talking about that progress, like like the will to actually make a difference in your own life, to become more virtuous. Um, And the Stoics famously said, either you're virtuous or you're not. Either you're above the water or you're drowning. There's no in between. But Seneca at least is carving out this possibility that we can talk about a proficcianes, a progressor as being someone worth emulating. And Seneca's letters are really about Seneca being a guide for Lucilius talking about his own ups and downs his progress his uh failures and he's very confessional it's almost like seneca is, is a philosopher and psychologist
1: it and it, and i have to say like i i discovered I as uh, i discovered the letters before i did any real reading about seneca and i read them kind of in a vacuum of uh you know and i just found you know i'm reading them in 2000 you know 12 or 13 like the first time And it could have been written the other day, except for the references about, you know, the gladiatorial combat and stuff. But if you just subbed in, you know, like the Bachelorette, it would have it could have fit, um, you know, uh,
0: uh, it can incredibly contemporary. Seneca is very modern. Right. In in the sense that he speaks to people kind of timelessly. Um, And some of the things he talks about in society really sound familiar There's a really great, um, uh, essay that he has where he's talking about people who are so interested in luxury and not doing anything that they don't even know if they're sitting or standing, right? And you think about the, the amount of wealth in our society and some of the issues that we're facing, Seneca sounds very, very modern. And I think you're right that you, you substitute modern conventions and modern entertainment and you've got basically things we're dealing with ourselves, um, the, the interesting thing about the letters is that the reason why we can't date them is because he doesn't talk about Nero. He doesn't talk about much of anything. The only really dateable thing we can uh, put, put down is there's a fire in the city of Lyon that we can date to a very, and that's the only date. We, so he's really talking about ideas and problems and interior reflections. Um, and that can apply anywhere right? No matter where you are, your interiority is your own thing. And the Stoics were really interested in your own interiorness as the locus, the place for your happiness, right? So no matter what happens outside, you can control your interiority and you can choose in some ways, I know this is, I'm, I'm simplifying, you can choose to be happy whether or not you have limbs, money, status, importance. So the interiority yeah. is the thing. Right.
1: Well, let's talk about a few of the letters. Um, uh, uh, I, I mean, this is an awesome conversation, but I really do want to, us to give some uh, give some teasers to potential readers because I, you know, I think everybody should read this uh, collection. So, you wanted to start with with the letter number five. Um, mm-hmm. So, t- what what is uh, what's the theme of this letter?
0: Yeah, so so letter five um, is about the way in which philosophy. Ought to be plied, right? How how should we be a philosopher in the city of Rome? And one of the things that um, Seneca does is he's he's actually advising Lucilius how to be a like how to do your stuff, how do you become a philosopher? Um, and he basically says like I'm really excited. The opening of the letter says I'm really excited that you're trying to improve yourself daily. And the early letters are all about daily improvement. And he says, I want you to keep doing this, but I want to make sure that you're not trying to do this to become famous or known, but rather for your own self, right? So your own progress, like your like the whole point is you getting better, not hey, I'm a philosopher, I'm doing awesome stuff, right? Look at me. Exactly. And one of the things about philosophy in Rome is as I mentioned, like there's like a there's a little like a, a concern about philosophy. Um, And so uh, apparently the name philosopher automatically like evokes in the image of Romans, like weird people doing weird stuff um, for becoming known. And so he says, I'm going to read a passage if you don't mind. He says, um, don't make your dress or mode of life conspicuous. Right? rough clothing and unshorn head shaving your head, an untrimmed beard, militant scorn of silverware, a pallet spread on the ground, and all the other perverse media of self-advertisement you must shun. Because the mere title of philosopher, however modestly worn, is hateful enough to the people. Right? What what if we should begin to take ourselves away from the ordinary stuff of mankind? Right? Basically, we should look like everyone else on the exterior, but change yourself on the interior to become better, right? So we shouldn't just like reject wealth. And the Stoics are very happy to say you can have all the money in the world if you don't need it, right? If you don't put any value in it, because the Stoics believed that external things are immaterial for your happiness, Right. And by valuing things that can be taken away, you're setting yourself up for unhappiness. Right. So if you say like, oh, I have all this money, I love money, money is awesome. And all of a sudden you go bankrupt. Right. Like you have put too much value in that. The value is on the interior progress that you're making towards becoming self-sufficient. That's really what it's all about. Yeah. Right. Okay. It's a um, it's a great introductory letter for Seneca because it really does kind of talk about how philosophy and the Roman society can possibly work together.
1: And so in letter seven, we kind of go on to talk about improvement, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, and you said you have a a, a Latin uh section that you you'd share with us. I, and I wanted you to do that it because it's kind of cool to actually hear it in the I mean, I'm not gonna understand it,
0: but uh uh but I'd like to hear it. Yeah. So, um, so, first of all, I, I'll just give a little background to letter, to, to letter seven. Um, it is very anti stoic in its approach at the beginning. He says, what he, he says to the size, what do you think you should avoid? You should avoid the crowd, people, like a bunch of people out there, because people make you worse because their vices leak one to you. Right. So, basically, the idea is you shouldn't get involved in like popular stuff, like the bachelorette, for example. Right. Um, because that will infect you somehow, because you're not perfected yet. You're still a progressor. You can still be infected by other people's vices, right? So you're still still weak enough that you can be affected by all of this. And it's kind of unstoic because Stoics believe you should participate in public life to a great extent where possible, right? So removing yourself to an interior only life is actually anti-Stoic, right? But he then says, "Listen, I'm going to confess to myself that I too can also be affected by the world around us." And this this letter is famous because he talks about going to a gladiatorial show where he thought he was going to get some light entertainment, but all of a sudden he sees the worst of humanity, telling people to kill each other. Right. So it's basically this 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 the kind of almost their only really visible evidence of what a show might have been like in terms of, of emotions and uh, and energy in a crowd. So what I'm going to read to you is he talks about what happens when he goes. Um, and the reason why I like it is because it shows Seneca's style. He's a very vigorous writer. So some of you, uh, you know, some of your listeners might have taken Cicero in a Latin class and have horror, horrifying um, memories of it because he writes page long sentences. Seneca is much more aggressive. He has what's called a pointed style. He writes quickly and directly. He's also very fond of juxtaposing things that shouldn't be juxtaposed. And there's an example of that in here. So I'll, I'll read it and then I'll break it down a little bit, a couple of things here and there. Awesome. So the, the part I'm going to talk about here is um, he talks about when he returns from a gladiatorial combat or some public uh, event, um, he's talking about how he's affected. So. Um, uh, Quid me existimas dicere. So what do you think I'm saying? So I'm gonna tell you. Awario redeo, ambitiosior, luxuriosior, immo crudelior et inhumanior, quia inter homines fui. Casu in meridianum spectaculum incidi, lusus expectans et sales and aliquid laxamenti Quo hominum oculi ab humano cuore adquiescant. Contrast. Basically, all those Eeyore words, like ambitiosior means I become more X, right? It's like more X. So I come back from these public engagements more greedy, more ambitious, more interested in luxury, right? In fact, imoero, I become more cruel and more inhumane because I was among humans. And I think that that's Seneca's style, right? I come home more cruel and less human because I was with humans, right? With with, with people, right? And then he talks about how the fact he thought he was going to go have some fun at this thing, but in fact, it was the opposite. It caused him to regress in his Mm -hmm. virtuous, because he's been infected by the things that normal people put value in. So, yeah, so that's, that's a little bit of Latin for you. I know it's uh, that's awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I hear
1: the consonants in that. I mean, it's uh, a, yeah. I mean, a lot of the romantic languages um, uh, have this, you know, a, uh, it's so much easier to rhyme and to get this uh, yeah. beautiful uh, sound. Now in that same letter though, I, I, I clipped out a bit that he he doesn't just say, people make you bad, right? He's like, you gotta pick the right people to associate with.
0: Right. So this is this is the 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 crux of the letter is why is it the crowd turba turba is the word he uses. And turba in Latin is loaded. It means like mob. It really means like mob mentality. Right. And you know we we see what happens when large groups of people get together and their passions are ignited and they do things that they otherwise wouldn't do. Right. So so like the word tourbuck, which gives a word turbulence, for example, right? Means like raucous crowd. Um but if you choose the people who will make you better, right? If you associate with the people who will make you better and you can make them better, then the progress is going to be much more possible. And the point here, which kind of goes back to the letter five, the first one we read, is that the the interior aspect of your life is the most important. Because the value you place on external goods is how you attain happiness. If you put your your uh, value on money, you're going to get disappointed at some point, right? Um, but that's what the crowd wants. The crowd wants the the the, the, the what, what we may call vulgar things like money, wealth, status, entertainment. And Seneca is saying like there is better and higher goods out there. So what the crowd wants is not necessarily what is best for the attainment of virtue. So you want to associate yourself with people make you better, not only the people who are around you now, but go back and read earlier people who already went down the path of virtue, like a Socrates, a Cato, a Lilius, all these names of famous Greeks and Romans who you know can help you attain virtue because even though they don't live around you, they can help you get there. So we're going to jump forward to letter 41
1: and this is where so we were just talking kind of about virtue and getting to virtue by kind of following people who can help elevate you rather than bring you down uh the mob would bring you down right so 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 in 41 I think he he starts to get into uh some discussion about stoic virtue
0: yeah so um you know the question about stoic virtue is first of all how do we define it and what is it right so the the discussion kind of starts uh by by looking around you know what is it about uh say animals or plants what's their highest nature right like like what, what what's their goal so for plants the goal is growth right but for humans it's rationality right so um becoming a completely rational human is the goal for humans because that is what's in accordance with our own nature so for virtue for the, for the Stoics is defined as living in accordance with virtue or nature. They're the same thing, nature and virtue, are the same thing, because the entire world is embodied by a beneficent divine presence, which in Greek is called logos, right? Or natura in Latin nature. And so um, everything in the world is guided by this, a spirit that embodies everything like rocks have a little bit of divine spirit, but it's it's a low level of divine spirit. We (laughs) humans have a lot of it, right? We're really like, we're next to God except we die. So the whole point about stoicism is how do you reach virtue, which allows you to be happy. And it's by basically living in accordance with rationality and rationality means you try and eliminate anything that causes you disturbance. So, Are you hungry? You eat, not because it tastes good, but because basically you're trying to eliminate that kind of problem. And one of the ways that you can do that is by saying, I don't need to put my value in externals. And this is hard for most people. And even in antiquity, there were lots of critics of stoicism. How can you live a life of happiness where you don't have legs where you don't have money, you don't have any status, you don't have any control over your life. For the Stoic, it's if you are a completely rational person living in harmony with your own nature, your interior world will be virtuous and therefore you will be living in accordance with nature and therefore happy, right? So our job is to use our mental faculties to reach that, what Marcus Aurelius will call an inter-citadel, right? Your own like fortress of interiority so that you can become happy. And that is really, really hard for most people to agree with. And Aristotle, for example, the great philosopher of the Greeks, thought externals were really important, right? You, you, you have to have some money or you, otherwise you'll be miserable, right? So it's a very big difference between the two of them. But but that's what the Stoics believed. And that was a way to defend yourself against the, the, the vicissitudes of fortune. Okay. Essentially, yeah.
1: Now you had a note that talked about this idea of a person pursuing to or to live in accordance with his own nature and you said that there's some scholarship kind of arguing about what did he mean by his
0: own yeah so so the question is is like okay so I'm, I'm a human and uh so stoics tell me you should live in accordance with nature right And that's very that's very big right like i should live in accordance with what the what nature has kind of determined for me um but then the question is that to live in, in accordance with one's own own nature implies that there's something about an individual uh, that is specific. And there are lots of writings in antiquity, especially in Cicero about um, the, the four masks we have, right? So basically we have like a universal uh, you know you know persona or or, or uh, uh, kind of facet. We have uh, being human, and then we have like our own individual cultural. So each person is deployed in a very different way. So living in accordance with nature is not just living in accordance with a grand scheme, although that's the basis, but you have to determine for yourself what, what it is your proper role is in, in you know, in the world. And so that like adding the word his or her own nature really changes the philosophical approach in a a very specific way we we probably have a lot of time to get into it but you know the question is is how do we have a fulfilling life that allows us to be happy but also contributes to the grand world order that we are a part of right so you and i even though we are on zoom like far away from each other are really connected through this idea of logos and the divine being that permeates all of us all right yeah, yeah, that's also related to everyone on Earth. Right. That's the whole idea of cosmopolitanism. Right. So cosmos. I'm related. Yeah, because because once your rationality expands, right, your human you expand to realize that you're not the only thing that's out there. And eventually you become coexistent with the cosmos. Right. Now, it's a big thing to throw out at the end of a podcast. But all right. What stoicism has is like you become coexistent with the whole universe, which is really cool.
1: That is cool. Well, let's close on talking about letter 88, because I think that kind of ties back to, I want to cl- give you a shot at kind of talking about class, the classics and why people should be still studying the classics. So in 88 Seneca kind of goes on a tire, a little bit of a tirade talking about liberal education. Mm-hmm. And I think it's kind of interesting. So I thought maybe give me, what is, what is, what are Seneca's thoughts about education and what what he calls a liberal education
0: yeah so um letter 88 is one of the longest in the entire um, uh, corpus uh and it's a and it's a dare i call it a rant um so it's ranty uh, (laughs) that's for sure so the uh so the the term liberal arts uh for listeners who are not aware of the origin comes from the uh, word liberalis in Latin, which means freedom. It has, it, it, it's like liberty, right? So liberal arts are the ones that make you free. And um, you know, Thomas Jefferson was very famous of talking about um, education and knowledge of all kinds, right? Allows you to be self-determinative in your own life in a way if you rely on others to tell you how to think, right? So liberal arts are literally the things you learn and the education you get that allows you to act freely without being dependent on others right so you know not to put too hard you know high a point of it today right these things that we think of as philosophy and history and education and and, and geography and and you know classics humanities right they don't seem very practical right but they are in fact the very things that allow you to, to determine things for yourself so that's my pitch for liberal arts generally. <laughs> Seneca takes what looks like a pretty um, critical approach of liberal arts, like geometry and things like that. But it's not because he doesn't believe that trying to learn skills and arts and education are unimportant. It's because the way that they are they are taught focus on minutiae, small things here, things over here that aren't asking the big questions, right? So for example, he famously criticizes all of these scholars. And by the way, I'm feeling a little bit angsty myself here because I'm one of these, right? right he right. criticizes scholars who look into questions like, is Homer or Hesiod older? What was the name of Achilles when he was hidden among the girls on the islands of Skyros, right? How many like you know, people were killed here, all these small points about literature that don't matter. He says, listen, if you want to actually make a difference, teach me not where Odysseus wandered in the world because of the question like, did Odysseus wander around Greece, in the Atlantic ocean and at North Africa area, right? Teach me how to stop wandering today, right? So his point is, we really have to focus on how education focuses on the art of living better as well, right? So yes, you need to learn basic skills in geometry and reading, but it's not just to pick apart little things that don't matter, but should contribute to human happiness, not only on my own scale, but other scale. So if anyone is interested in thinking about like big questions and why we need to ask them in, in schools from kindergarten to college, Go read letter 88 and allow yourself to think about all these big questions because it really is thought provoking in a number of ways.
1: I want to, I want to share one passage that I particularly like. Um, mm-hmm. And so Seneca said in my translation, he says, why then do we give our sons a liberal education? Not because it can make them morally good, but because it prepares the mind for the acquisition of moral values.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So it's kind of yeah. going to your idea of like, it's not, we're not, teaching you to memorize all the cases for the subjunctive or whatever right mm-hmm. it's it's uh it's um it's to it's to to kind of deal with this
0: raw material um yeah. that, that we are yeah yeah so so it's a stepping stone right so so we need powerful education we and by the way I, I think that Seneca would say yes we do need to memorize and I think that we need to have more people, who have control over facts and that sort of thing at their fingertips. But those are preparation for the really big questions that we, you know, we still haven't figured out everything. Like, that's why humanities matters, because we're still wrestling with fundamental questions that science will never, never, never answer for us. No offense to scientists. Uh, you know.
1: <laughs> um, all right. So this was a quick whirl- whirlwind visit to seneca and uh just wonderful thank you i hope we can do this again maybe go in some more detail on some of the other stuff um uh but uh i want to give you a a second to pitch uh why should somebody young person coming to uh graduating from uh high school today go study latin and greek that Mm -hmm. outside of the
0: vatican people aren't really speaking anymore
1: ancient greek obviously not yeah
0: yeah, so I mean, there, there are you know, first of all, I want to dispel a notion that a lot of people have, which is you are destined to an economically poor life if you study philosophy or classics. Um, I'm famous for saying philosophy majors outperform every other major in college and mid-career salary, except engineers. Right? Philosophy, the thing you're like, well, it's big. It's because. Thinking in complex ways, having control over facts, and being able to marshal arguments is really important, right? So, so just let's get those classics in history and philosophy. They have fine career earnings. It's not as if you're going to end up, you know, in the proverbial flipping burgers category uh, because you are trained to think in very powerful ways. And I think we underestimate that, you know, in our educational system. I also think that we don't need to have millions of classics majors, but we ought to have people who are interested in every facet of the human experience, right? So even though, you know, we don't have Persian here, right? We don't, you know, teach Persian. Ancient Persian, right? I think somewhere in our education system, someone should be able to study things that are not immediately practical because that's like the fact that what we do is not pertinent or practical in any conventional sense is why they're so important in some ways, right? the active idea of thinking about stuff, intellectual pursuits is really important. Now, I will say that classics is going through something of a a crisis, right? There is a self-reflection about how classics has been co-opted into various um, racist organizations. And the fact is, is that classics has a lot of baggage, but I still think that the fact that there are powerful ideas that we can look at people of incredible importance like Plato and Aristotle and their ideas, ideas are more important than facts on the ground in some ways. And I think we need to be doing more of that. And you can get that studying another language like German. You can do it by doing classics. You can do it by doing humanities. You can do it in a variety of ways. But this is one of the ways that you can get at really important things. And as my colleague, Greg McMahon says, the stuff we teach is kind of the coolest stuff in the world. And you get involved in it in a way that is just compelling. So once you kind of do it, if you like it, you're going to love it. There's not a lot of people who go in there and like it and don't really get into it. There are a lot of people that I think would major in it if their pressure from their parents or culture um, didn't tell them they couldn't do it.
1: I see it. I see. So let me make my, a little bit of my case uh, along what you're saying. If you haven't read Seneca, if you haven't read Plato, um, even in the, and even in English translation, you are missing out on so much of what our society is built on. Like these are found to me, the classics are foundational building blocks of Western culture. That's just to me.
0: Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. You know, I, you know, I think the important thing is, is that we have to recognize that our Western cultural roots are real and are problematic, but they are real, right? And we have to recognize that we ought to be interrogating this, right? We should be re-interrogating these big ideas continuously. And we just have such a rich body of material from these peoples um, that I think is important for us to go there, in addition to other places, but we should definitely continue to do it. Yeah. Um. And, you know, I, I, I love the, the relationships I have, have with my students. Um. You know, I get invited to their weddings. It's great. And they're doing great. Like it isn't as if they are struggling and so, yeah. on. So, so it's not as if, you know, that is a, you know, a, a, a choice that, that you're, you're going to regret. I'm going to ask you, since you confessed to me that you were a philosophy major yeah. right, Can you make the case for philosophy.
1: I think you just did. I mean it it was um you know it's what uh it, it's that line that I I I read you know it prepares the mind for the acquisition of moral values. I think there's that. Um but I also think it's really hard. Like like you're you're dealing with texts that are complex um and ideas that are are difficult to kind of wrap your head around and I would say, you know, taking that and having gone into a um you know into a managerial profession mm-hmm. i spent a lot of time reading difficult texts to understand what's going on in my in my world and i think i could say that training that i had you know in reading plato and aristotle uh i could you know it, it was the same mm, mm, toolkit if you will Uh, Even though, you know, I'm I'm thinking of like regulations and things and just kind of holding these complex ideas in your head uh, uh, is is, and and manipulating them is the kind of training that I think you get from the humanities, particularly philosophy, Mm -hmm. um, but but the other pieces as well.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you. So I want to make one more remark. So I, I want to thank you very much for inviting me here, because these conversations that we have like this are remarkably important. Um, and I hope your listeners, um, you know, take them in and go read a bunch of Seneca. Yeah. Aristotle, try, go, go try and read Immanuel Kant, right? Like go there. I like go. and wow, do all that's,
1: that's, tough. Tough.
0: <laughs> that's tough. I know. And we should do them because they are hard, right? Like right. that's the reason. We should like, do like, hard things. We should do hard things and we should fail at them and then we should try again and hopefully we succeed. Right. So, um, yeah. Yeah. Scott, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate it. Mark, this has been a pleasure. I hope, uh, this, uh, next year goes well. And, um, you know, let's do it again. If you, if you have an interest, I I think absolutely. All right. Thanks, Mark.
1: Thanks for listening to flourishing in the world. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. And if you did, won't you share it with a friend and leave us a rating wherever you might be listening until next time, this is Mark Bonica, willing good for all of you.